0: Hi, this is Zoe Durand. Um, This is the Inside Family Law podcast. And I'm very lucky to be here today with um, Vincent Papaleo, probably a man who, at least amongst family lawyers, needs no introduction. Um, uh, I'll let Vincent tell you, though, in his own words, a bit about his experience and background, just to start with. So thanks for coming, Vincent.
1: Thanks Zoe, thanks for the invitation.
0: So what what is it that you do in the family law process?
1: Um, I'm a um, family report writer, so I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Um, This is my 33rd year of uh, working in the family law arena. Um, I was initially uh, a clinical psychologist working in public child mental health, working in a public hospital, uh, treating families on an outpatient basis, and I was dragged into a family court matter, uh, and I've been there ever since.
0: Mm. And that's interesting what you say in terms of it it kind of unfolded that way rather than maybe being a really strong, conscious career plan to get into the family law work. Um, Do you see a lot of people who sort of end up pulled into this work and, you know, yeah, there's no... a gun variety of psychologists, yeah. and suddenly they're doing this work or... Look, I
1: think people tend to fall into this work. There's no specific training for family law uh, expertise, even in the forensic courses. Um, there's a family law component, but no actual family law training. I guess from my perspective, um, it's been quite a revelation. There is so much to know, so much to learn about. Um, and I think that for psychologists who are not familiar with much of the family law vernacular, or the family law experience it can be a very daunting and difficult experience. Um, there's a lot to learn, and a lot I didn't know about until I was able to experience it firsthand.
0: I mean, something that I want to raise, I mean, you and I had discussion about this in another time um, previously, is and without with, with very good intentions and still doing a very good job, sometimes psychologists that aren't used to this work can end up being pulled into being an advocate for once or, or, or not, you know, they can get pulled into a role they didn't realise they were getting Indeed.
1: pulled into. Yeah. Look, I think um, without meaning to be critical of anyone, and, and mm-hmm. most of my mental health colleagues are, are endeavouring to do the best they can and to support their clients and, and to be of assistance, mm-hmm. Um, But one of the most uh, salient features of of doing this sort of work is maintaining multiple hypotheses simultaneously. That is trying to consider different possibilities to explain the behaviour all at the one time rather than accepting just one person's perspective. So it might be common, for example, in, uh, uh, in, in suburban practice to have a person who comes to see you with a genuine need for assistance, but you only ever get to hear that person's point of view and that person's story. You don't get to see the other person, you don't get to see the other person interact with their children, Uh, and especially if that that mental health professional is then invited to express a view about what should happen, the the, the risk of bias based on the limited exposure becomes really very high, and I think that um, my colleagues who I've seen experience the greatest difficulties are the ones who've expressed strong views in relation to a matter without having seen all of the parties.
0: So that, that's interesting. So what would you say for someone who is finding themselves getting pulled into a matter um, that they should perhaps... What, what should they do if they are a psychologist and working with an individual and they're finding themselves somehow getting pulled in? Yeah.
1: I, I think in relation to the family law work, it's easy. Uh, the easy piece of advice is to temper what they say, to acknowledge the, the, the limitations of their experience, to acknowledge their, that they haven't seen all the parties and that the conclusions drawn are based on the information they have available. Yeah, um, sure and we need to make sure that we don't uh, fall into the realm of emotional facts, that is believing what is said to us without checking forensically whether in fact there's support for those claims or not.
0: Do you also work as a family therapist or or just a family report writer currently?
1: Um, I still maintain a small clinical practice. Uh, I'm a child psychologist by training, so I still uh, see children who are having problems with eating and sleeping disorders, uh, uh, problems with toileting, uh, behaviour management. Uh, So that's something that's really my passion and I enjoy keeping a small uh, clinical load going. The vast majority of my work, however, is now in relation to family law related matters, either giving expert opinion to the court in in order to facilitate a better outcome for children or in fact consulting with families around the establishment of parenting plans without the need of judicial intervention and and hopefully not litigation so that parents are empowered to start making good decisions in relation to their children. Um, and I think that, sort of, in terms of the, the overlap with regards to the clinical work, um, many of the, the clinical principles in terms of effective behaviour management are just as relevant and just as pertinent in terms of assisting children in the post separation period. So, you want parents who are authoritative, you want parents who are in control, you want parents who are behaving in an uh, authoritative manner, parents who are cooperative. My own view is that parenting isn't a democracy. Not everyone gets an equal say, but rather parenting is a benevolent autocracy where children have a range of options uh, within the options provided to them by their parents. And if you can have parents who are united, who see the world in the same way, who are genuinely able to elevate their children's needs ahead of their own, then you've got the greater likelihood of those children being able to negotiate through a very stressful time, and a time when parents themselves are often very stressed and maybe compromised in their parenting and getting through to the other side. However, if you have parents who are really permissive or indulgent or very stressed and anxious, parents who are unable to contain and manage their children or their own emotions, then I think the foundation for a better outcome is significantly compromised.
0: One thing I wanted to talk a bit with you about is this whole thing about, I guess, generational changes. Obviously, the way people parent, I mean, every family is different but over the generations has changed and you were talking once I remember uh, before and just then you mentioned it again this permissive parenting Mm. um, and sort of very hyper kind of empowered children where it's the child might be saying I'm not going to see mum or I'm not going to see dad and that's I'm 12 and then that's it Mm. It, it, what are your thoughts on that sort of we do see that in the Sydney registry sometimes
1: obviously every case needs to be considered it's on merits and and I don't want to run the risk of uh, painting by numbers so that we talk about all cases being the same. But as a general observation the holy trilogy of child development is stability, consistency and predictability. We want a stable, consistent, predictable experience so that the child understands that what their parent says is what their parent means and that they follow through. So that they can rely on that parent so as to use that parent as a yardstick against which to measure their own behaviour. Now of course teenagers have, since the beginning of time, been challenging their parents. But we want them to, which is absolutely normal, but we also want children of all ages to understand what their parents' expectations are so that there is an internal representation that the child can measure against and hopefully gain a greater sense of self-control. Of course teenagers will express their views, of course teenagers will rightfully assert those views. But I think that there is a significant difference between encouraging people within a certain age range to express a view and encourage them to have a point of view and to be dictated to, to by that view mm-hmm. so that we don't have the tail wagging the dog. I don't think anywhere in society do we allow children to make decisions of such enormity, like maybe it occurs in the family law context. Um, because they haven't got the capacity to fully appreciate the long-term implications of some of the choices that they're making. And if we believe the neuroscience, the neuroscience says that people's brains really aren't developing, and certainly young men's brains, are not developing until maybe 25 or later. Um, that would
0: be
1: my
0: life experience
1: from my observation. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and and I, I think most people you know, who are listening, uh, especially the fellas, will remember when they're sort of 20 to 25, they do, kind of do dumb things and they're they're like puppies running around with their friends and and at some point life becomes a little bit different, it's a bit more measured, a bit more tempered, uh, fewer risks are taken, life seems to settle down and we mature, whatever that means. I just think to empower um, people who are at a very vulnerable age um, to make decisions that have such enormity. Uh, and such potential consequences is is wrought with difficulties. And we wouldn't do it in any other area of our work, no other area of our world. We would never tolerate the sort of uh, anxiety-driven behaviour that many of these young people present with, and we'd never allow their level of anxiety to escalate like this. I think the big difference that uh, is evident in family law disputes is that in families that are functioning more effectively, parents seek to maintain and contain the child's behaviour. They place limits, they have a united front. They don't over-involve the child in the dispute. They don't burden the child with conflicting views of reality. They maintain boundaries. They don't tell the child inappropriate detail and information. The three things I hear from the young people who come to see me all the time are, I do not want to hear my parents' story. I do not want to carry messages, and I do not want to hear my parents speak badly about each other. If you think of that, that trilogy, um, I would say that for the vast majority of the really difficult cases, there is a fundamental violation of that contract. Um,
0: that's a good, yeah, mm-hmm. that captures it well. And what's the trilogy again, just around the listing. who might be separating?
1: Um, I do not want to hear my parents' story. Mm. I do not want to carry messages. And I do not want to hear my parents speak badly about each other. I had, if if I may Zoe, a a, a little girl said to me in in remarkable, uh, remarkable insight, said to me, my mum and dad don't understand, because I'm half my mum and half my dad, and I love them both the same, when they fight it feels like the two halves of who I am are in conflict and I cannot feel whole. That's so
0: interesting.
1: Uh, And it's remarkable, even less articulate children, when you broach those sorts of concepts with them, what's it like to to live in a broken family and what's it like to have a mum and dad who don't agree, are able to articulate very clearly this sense of fragmentation, that they can't feel united. And if you have parents who are united and are being unreasonable, the overwhelming sense of injustice might be great, but it's your mum and dad, that's what they're doing and everyone moves along. And um, I don't mean to, to make light of a tremendously serious situation, but... I would suggest that, that if parents were to, de- to de- decide that they were going to move to Siberia and live in cardboard boxes with their children, most children would go to Siberia and live in cardboard boxes. If that's what,
0: this is what we're doing get with the program, If yeah. this is
1: what their parents said, we have to do this, we understand you aren't happy about this, we understand it's not what you choose, but the circumstances in our family dictate that this is what we have to do now, I would venture that most children would go, even if they are unhappy, and it would be alright.
0: I remember once, when we were speaking, you talked about how when children, um, it's like to go from one parent to the other, it's like they're having to cross a bridge or something. Yep. There was some metaphor you used that was really struck me. Could you yes. go through that again? Look,
1: I think that the, the analogy of the bridge is an enormously helpful one. That, um, that uh, in, in families where parents are functioning well, the child understands that there is a bridge that connects their parents. And what you see happening is that the parents facilitate the child's transition across the bridge. They either encourage the child across the bridge or they take the child across the bridge into care of the other person or meet the other parent midway across the bridge so as to facilitate a handover. The child understands that both his or her parents are contributing positively and are providing a safe, secure mechanism by which the child can cross. And I guess the the metaphor is we want to construct a thick, concrete bridge that can tolerate uh, bad weather, that can tolerate storms and wind and, and rain, so that the child knows that they can cross from one parent to the other all the time with certainty and security. However, if that bridge is compromised by conflict, Uh, allegations, uh, parents who are not functioning well in their own emotional state. The bridge goes from being a strong, concrete, sturdy structure to a twisting rope bridge with broken slat, and suddenly it feels unsafe to cross. They
0: feel wobbly. It feels
1: wobbly and it doesn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. They they perceive, either as a consequence of what a parent is saying, what a parent is doing, what both parents are saying and both parents are doing, that moving across becomes difficult. And so many children will actually choose not to cross because they feel it's too unsafe. Mm. And, and, and
0: what do you mean by that? In reality, that means that
1: they They don't unsafe. want to go, they express, express their reluctance, they're resistant, they say that it's dangerous, they don't feel safe. And yet when they get across the bridge, they're okay. So the other parent will say, "Look, actually when they're with me they're fine, they're, mm. they're happy, they're relaxed. But it's the transition and often the case, a precursor in what we would describe as alienation cases, is that the child will go to the parent who ultimately becomes alienated but will say they don't want to leave them. So that the transition back becomes compromised, and I would describe it as um, uh, um, this sort of intolerance that comes with the conflicting worldviews or, or, or parallel universes, that, that in the family law context we are almost acclimatised to living in a world where there are parallel universes, that the stories that they're telling are completely different and the truth often feels as though it's the first casualty. What you see for these these children who are trying to negotiate between these parallel universes is that at times it can become too difficult. They have to split one parent off. They can't maintain an integrated sense of unity of their parental, their parental views, beliefs and positions and it becomes intolerable for them to live in that middle ground between warring parties. They understand that it's potentially dangerous and they have to keep their heads low or else they'll be damaged.
0: They're trying to resolve these unresolvable differences, I guess, between maybe Indeed. the two parents. It? The parents, sorry. And so they can sometimes end up just favouring one and rejecting the other. Or just,
1: a... to one view or just of aligning to one view of reality. Because that reality is at least coherent. Mm-hmm. But if you're living in a constant state of dissonance where you're hearing and, and seeing and feeling different things all the time and those emotions are being deposited into you continuously and you understand that there is a message of restraint, that you know that your mother or father doesn't want you to cross that bridge, or would prefer that the parent on the other side of that bridge wasn't there, or tells you that that bridge is dangerous, it's going to be difficult to make the transition backwards and forwards.
0: So, how do we help children cross that bridge and feel that they can access and love, have permission to love both their parents? How do we give them that?
1: Well, metaphorically, it's easy. That is In to reality. make. <laughs> the reality can be complicated because the bridge can be compromised by parental conflict, parental sadness, feelings of loss, financial pressure, litigation. I think that if you you imagine um, the bridges connecting uh, between two warring trenches and the the, the land underneath is no man's land, if you're constantly shooting missiles at each other, it's going to be enormously difficult to also say to your child it's safe to go across. And that when people become damaged themselves, as a consequence of what's occurred, they are much more likely to perceive risk and danger and perceive the other parent as less capable or less able. And it becomes significantly problematic if in the defence of that position, the other parent has to retaliate and says things that, once words are said, they can be toxic, it can't repair. What I see all the time, and what I hear all the time from the young people I see in response to the question, if you had some advice for your mum and dad, what would it be? What do they need to do for you in order to make it better? And they almost always say, without exception, they need to minimise the conflict, they need to get on better, they need to be polite, they need to be friendly. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, if we are unable to intervene in that regard, I think the court has an enormous role and opportunity to intervene. It may be that we accept that some families are in such a state of disarray for a period of time that instead of imposing upon them a requirement for cooperative co-parenting, that it might be better to accept for a period that it's better to have parallel parenting where Mm. you pick up and drop off from school, that you have overnight stays but you use school as a point of transition so as to just spare the child the stress and the distress of transitions from one parent into the care of the other. Using school as a buffer has been really helpful. Um, Other families, that uh, when school is not available, to use a library, a place Mm. where people have to be quiet, can be really helpful. Uh, To try and do what we can to moderate and accept that maybe for now this is a family that's not functioning at its optimum. Mm -hmm. And it won't for a little while, until everything is sorted and things can heal. Our aim is to try and do less damage, not more. It's it's a big challenge. So
0: what are the effects, if children are exposed to this sort of endemic ongoing conflict. Yep. What kind of adults does this potentially, how does it affect them in adulthood? In adulthood?
1: Uh, there is an overwhelming body of social science literature around the effects of, of separation uh, on children and conflict. Uh, it's important to understand that just because parents, the, the majority of children whose parents separate are fine. Mm. They go through a period of difficulty, their parents reorganize, but that's also not the majority of people we see. Those people are organising themselves, and they're they're getting through it, and they're still behaving in a parental manner. Um, However, if you look at children who are exposed to significant conflict over the course of their lives, uh, and significantly um, for those children whose parents share their care and maintain high levels of conflict, those children do significantly less well uh, emotionally and behaviourally. They are at significantly higher risk of having problems with anxiety and depression significantly higher risk of having problems with alcohol and drug use and are very significantly at higher risk of having problems maintaining intimate relationships. And that is especially so for that group of children who are caught in that dynamic where they lose one parent and one, one whole side of their family.
0: Sure. The
1: outcomes for those people are sadly very poor. Like
0: what kind of, How does it affect children if they lose contact with one half of their family? What are some of the? I know every situation is different, but what are some of the
1: social science research on uh, that? Those children are at significantly higher risk of having mental health problems, and maintain and significantly higher risk of having the capacity to sustain intimate, satisfying relationships. The problem is their sleeper effects. So that whilst it might seem as though the here and now is all important, it's what is happening to them in their early adult lives that becomes such a problem and such a difficulty.
0: I remember you were saying something about. Um you know, when you're working with families, you, you, you're wanting them to sort of model forgiveness and repair and resilience, and then, but if their children aren't seeing that, they're not going to be able to well, model be. that. Yeah.
1: The vast majority of the people I see when asked if they hope that their children will interact with their future partners the way they are interacting with each other in my office, they are all aghast and say, of, co- of course not, no, we don't want that. But that's exactly what is being modelled. So even in the face of adversity, what can be modelled is cooperation. What can be modelled is tolerance. What can be modelled is forgiveness. Mm -hmm.
0: Forgiveness, I think that is so so huge. Because it gets to a point, so many things have happened, so many little little and major wrongs, you you, you have to forgive at some
1: point. And I think it's easy to maintain conflict. Uh, I'm not sure what it's like for you, uh, Zoe, but when I have conflict with my wife, I'm never to blame. (laughs) it's it's always her and if I want to I can say things like she's always difficult she's always obsessive she's always controlling when that's not not the truth at all I I know that but in that moment moment. in that moment I can feel that and I can say things that are hurtful and angry but that's not really what it's like it's really what it's like in that moment because I'm cross but if it is a constant shooting backwards and forwards then I think that the possibility for causing damage becomes very great.
0: So, in terms of repairing damage, I mean, what, what do you see as the role of family therapy? Can family therapy help or is it just sort of, a, does it do much or is it only work if people want to go or...?
1: Look, that's a very complicated you know. question.
0: Um, <laughs> be my oracle, give me the answer now in five minutes. Look, <laughs> I, I
1: do have a couple of strong views about this. I think that if we're in the family court arena, um, if you're going to do any kind of psychological work, it all has to be reportable. It that's cannot
0: because that's a big question,
1: reportable, not reportable. I, I, my, my own view is that it has to be reportable yeah. um, because those families who benefit from it don't need to go back to court and those that don't, the dynamic of why they don't becomes so obvious and so prominent and so important for the court to know that uh, to not be able to introduce that into the, the narrative of the court I think is a significant mistake. But
0: the, the only thing is right with, this is my thoughts, with reportable therapy and look, you are more across all this sort of than me. I mean, I'm coming from the family law mediator perspective. I haven't worked with families as a family therapist. Yeah. If it's reportable, like, how are children going to be able to be honest knowing that it's, like, going back to the parent? You know what I mean? Like, there is that dynamic. Like There, there, there
1: and- is certainly that, that dynamic. Whether you can actually do therapy as such in family law context and whether you can do therapy that is not reportable is a whole different issue. I think that... Um, the majority of the work that we're doing is helping to, in a very behavioural sense, um, reconstitute the family and try and change the way they're interacting. Um, inevitably, by the time people get to see the family lawyers and the family court, they're very fixed and polarised in their views.
0: Do, do you think, in your, just your personal subjective opinion, um, that the adversarial process amplifies that conflict, being in the court system?
1: Um, I think it's easy to, uh, to uh, blame the, the adversarial process for everything and the court process for everything and the lawyers for everything. I, I think that, um, honestly, I think that there is a core group of uh, personalities and people with personality problems and personality disorder traits who are particularly conflict driven, who work exclusively from an external locus of control, who say my problem is because of you and your behaviour and they never look at themselves and their own behaviour. And so they marshal their troops to, 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 to battle. And those personalities, I think, are particularly prone to litigation and are prone to a poor outcome no matter what. That's mm-hmm. interesting. And I would encourage you know, as much as possible in the whole legal process for those families to be intervened with very quickly, as quickly as possible, so that they are contained and managed. So there are clear rules around their children and the parenting time to try and remove from discussion that which is a source of greatest conflict. Um, and, and these families and these individuals find conflict everywhere. Anything that is ambiguous, Well, half the holidays would seem to you and I to be a fairly straightforward exercise, but when do the holidays start? Do they start on the Friday or do they start on the Monday? Uh, and that can be a source of interminable conversation and discussion. Seen it. <laughs> You've seen it, and Maybe most it. people I, I suspect who are listening will, will have had that sort of experience. And, uh, uh, what do you do if it's a, a school free day and what do you, All those sorts of things, if you can remove all those points of aggravation, it can often help minimise the conflict. Because many of the people, even the, the, those who are the most difficult, feel that they're not being treated fairly. And if we can get a sense of fairness, even though it might be unpalatable, and structure, uh, then it's like managing a small child. Stable, consistent, predictable. So everybody knows what the rules are, and we follow through. And if, if you transgress those rules, then there's a consequence. For really conflict-driven families, that kind of external control, and the, the judge adopting a pseudo-parental position, uh, is, I think, enormously helpful.
0: That's so interesting what you say about that word, fairness, because I do sometimes see people where they're more focused on this sort of really kind of regressive pursuit of fairness above what's best for ch- the child. Yes. Like, they're obsessed with fairness. Like it gets kind of ridiculous sometimes.
1: Well, the fairness really reflects on how they feel they've been treated themselves. It's about me Mm. rather than the you. Mm. So it's not really about the child's best interests. I might significantly compromise my own position for the sake of my children, even though that may not be fair. I may choose to put myself in harm's way in order to protect my children, regardless of whether that's fair or not. Mm. Uh, I think for, for some people, the sense of fairness and the elevation of fairness to the highest level because it reflects... The
0: is I've ...their that, need,
1: yeah. but really that's probably maybe saying them. more about them <laughs> and maybe they're not necessarily reflecting upon the impact of their actions upon their child. Mm, mm.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I, I've definitely seen that, that theme with the whole, the just obsessive pursuit yep. of fairness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to ask you a bit more, I mean, we sort of t- touched on it or went around it a bit, cases where children, and look, For the lawyers that are listening in, I can guarantee almost every lawyer either has now or recently had or will have soon a matter where a child is not seeing another parent at all. Like zero contact. Yes. And it can feel sort of, I mean, there's no one approach, but what are the kind of different approaches that lawyers can be, what what the parents could be doing or that lawyers could be doing in starting the other one?
1: Look, um, Look, I suppose if we start with some overarching principles, you're stuck with your parents. Whether they're good or bad, you're stuck with them. You get one set, and trying to work out what to do about them can sometimes be a lifelong task. But I'd suggest that, that all of you who are parents will be parents, not until you die, but until your children die. So you are going to be parents for the life of your children. and So what you do and how you manage the gift of parenthood is a, a pretty important deal. Um, I think that the, the social science that I see that I've read and what my direct clinical experience tells me is that children who are losing touch with one parent uh, for the majority are doing poorly. Okay, As soon as they've lost half, lost half of who they are and as soon as they're in that process that we would describe as alienation, they're already in crisis. However, we also need to look at, at why it is that children are refusing to see their parents. Some children don't see their parents because of really, really good reasons. They don't want to see their, their parents because of the way in which... The parent has behaved.
0: The real world experience. You
1: yeah. know, and, and parents who are neglectful, really. estrangement. Um, those those cases are really different, and those those cases are often much more amenable to treatment because the child, him or herself, really needs to come to terms with the fact that maybe they don't have the perfect parent, and just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're in your not in your life. So. Most kids who do well, even in difficult circumstances, are the ones who come to peace with the parent they've got, so they do have a relationship with them. And a reflection of, of healthy psychological functioning is ambivalence. You know, if you understand that, uh, look, my mum or my dad or my partner or my work colleagues, you know, they're pretty good most of the time, but there are some things that really annoy me about them and that you can kind of live with that, that's okay. You see the
0: good and the bad, are grey. Yeah.
1: They're grey and, and you can maybe reflect upon your own behaviour. My concern is that group of children who are splitting off one parent and rejecting them categorically with no good reason or justification or trivialise it when in fact what they're doing is fighting the battle for the other parent regardless of whether that parent knows they're doing that or not. Sure. The outcome for those kids is really substantial. and. Uh, Um, I think that the court and the legal profession and the mental health profession has a responsibility to try and intervene. We would never tolerate that kind of outcome anywhere else. And um, I I think probably the cornerstone on how to progress is having a good assessment, is really trying to understand whether this is a case where there are real, real explanations for why this kid doesn't want to go. It might be, for example, that they're young and that they're closer to their mum and it's just hard for them to leave. Well, Mm. that doesn't reflect badly on the dad, it just may reflect something on the temperament of the child, it might reflect something on the circumstances, the historical context, it might reflect a whole bunch of things. It might be a child who is being maltreated. Mm. It might be a child who is confronting a parent who is compromised because of their mental health problems or uh, drug and alcohol problems. The group that I'm the most concerned about, and I think the group you're referring to, is that group of children who, up until a certain point in time, had a good relationship with that parent.
0: Yeah. yeah. That th- they were, separation.
1: That there was you know, an attachment, there was an emotional investment, this person was prominent and significant, and something has changed which has meant that there was a tipping point and they could no longer cross that bridge. Mm. Something has happened.
0: Yeah, something's happened. So... That's
1: stopped. And to allow that to continue to fester I think is a mistake, and I think it's well worth the risk and the effort to try and repair that relationship, even if it means the court requiring and acting as the super parent and directing that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I personally don't feel comfortable with young children directing the court and the Australian Family Court system and Australian Family Law judges uh, in what they can and can't do. We wouldn't allow anyone else in our community to snub their, their nose at the judges or disregard the court orders or tell the judges they didn't care what they were thinking. Why is it that we empower children of this age to do exactly the same thing.
0: Well, when you get those 12-year-olds or the 13-year-olds and up and up, what do you do with as they get older,
1: you know? Well, that, that's really complicated. I think, nonetheless, what would you do if you had a 13-year-old who said they weren't going to school? Would you simply acquiesce and say, well, your wishes are going to dominate uh, because it's too hard, I'm not going to do it? Or do you have parents who come together and say, this is not an option, we will manage that? It's important to note that most kids who are not going to school, for example, and most kids who are having these problems are enormously anxious.
0: Anxiety-related,
1: yeah. yeah. And I, I, my own direct clinical experience is that many of the young people that I'm seeing who are caught in these horribly complicated situations experience very high levels of anxiety and that when the decision is taken from them, we're not asking them to... I, I, I'm personally not a fan of, of, of uh, you know neurosurgery with a chisel. Um, you know, Just changing the living arrangements uh, I think should be the very, very last thing we do. But at the same point, I would say that... Uh, it's not unreasonable for the court to say in certain circumstances you've got to see your mum or dad you've got to go to therapy you've got to go to counseling there has to be this amount of contact that you have to see them for one night a week for an hour that's just the way it's going to be and then we'll talk to you i think that kind of emphasis and that kind of persistence is not unreasonable as compared to simply saying look this is just too hard i can't do it's anything it's too hard
0: that you've got a 12 year old that's too hard because you know, sometimes hard. that's the attitude that you
1: come across Well, you know? I, look. And I'm sympathetic and I understand that some of these kids can appear to be immovable forces. Yeah. <laughs> and they can be challenging and confronting. But would we allow them to do that anywhere else? And my suggestion is no.
0: What if and you have this 12-year-old and they're, like, they're refusing to go, they're running out of the therapy session, they're refusing to go to therapy, what do you do with them
1: then? Um, depends on why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though I talk about it with great optimism, I understand that some families are so damaged that it's not possible, but then it's important to understand what is the child's behaviour telling you? You know, if the child's behaviour... I I like that phrase, sorry, what what,
0: what you just said about what the child's behaviour is telling you. I think that's really interesting.
1: So they're communicating something, Mm -hmm. and the danger is, of course, that everyone projects onto the child's behaviour their own erroneous interpretation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see a young boy who tells me, who, who regularly doesn't want to visit with his father, but when I was able to drill down with him, he was able to tell me I don't visit with my father because I know it upsets my mother. I just know and she's so distressed by me going that it's almost impossible for me to do so ostensibly however this case looks like an alienation case but i think it's significantly more complex than that Mm. and in this particular case how the mum is feeling and the circumstances leading up to why she feels the way she does including some other mental health issues really need to be factored in and in that case how we manage that, that, that that boy's behaviour becomes really important. To simply say you're going, you don't have a choice, might escalate his anxiety so much that he'll Mm. be paralysed. But his dad is thankfully prepared to say, if you tell me that it's so stressful for you that you can't do it, then I'll take you home to your mum, that's okay. So that at least we create the bridge, Mm. that the boy doesn't feel as though he's stuck, that if we need to help him back, all you need to do is hold my hand and I'll take you back. Mm-hmm. and even if you don't want to come back when you're with me I can keep you safe I can look after you I'm hearing how you say, how you feel and even though you say these horrible things to me and even though you understand you understand how the other parent feels and that you're in a battle with me what I'm going to do is I'm not going to defend my position I'm not going to give you my view of the reality and further amplify
0: or be obsessed with the fairness
1: thing Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to amplify that split I'm not going to amplify that parallel universe in which you're living I'm going to try and accept that this is complicated for you and all you need to do is rely on me to be there. Okay? And we'll work our way forward and it'll take a little bit of time. It's very difficult to do when you're firing missiles at each other, of course. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're feeling resentful about what yeah. the other side's done. This
1: and, that. and if my formulation about the anxiety and the anxiety within the family is, is uh, even remotely correct, then that kind of action on the part of either parent, further litigation or, or defending, is likely to cause everyone to be more distressed. So I do think the court has an overarching opportunity to, to get the entire matter and to compress it down and try and hold on and to take charge of it. Mm-hmm. And I think if we keep doing the same thing over and over in the hope of getting a different outcome, we, we won't be successful. Isn't
0: that quite... That, that's madness, too, to keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome is, is well, well, I
1: suspect <laughs> that most of the people who are listening who've had really complicated family cases will say it, it sends them mad there's a certain... Madness and insanity about the cases that can be madness really infectious <laughs> and it really becomes burdensome, and we worry about those cases. And so, yeah.
0: Mm. So, for lawyers, like moving away from not just those sort of really hard cases where a child might, for whatever, as you said, a variety of reasons, not be seeing a parent. Um, just generally speaking, and I know it's hard to generalize, but and lawyers will do things, you know, they're looking at it from a different perspective as well. We're all, yeah, all understand that. But from your perspective, What are some things, if you could speak to family lawyers that you would like them to be doing more or less of, or any thoughts about what you're seeing sometimes that that you think the lawyers should be doing it differently this way, or, you know, Um, more of that? Putting on my
1: my child mental health uh, uh, hat, I would like lawyers to refer much earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like them to work with us. I'd like it to be a more uh, systemic approach so that uh, families are coming to see us for assistance and advice and opinion. I'd like to be able to share that more actively and constructively with my legal colleagues. I'd like to be able to uh, um, talk about solutions in the company of my legal legal colleagues and the family together about the options uh, to, to adopt a position of advocacy for the child and try to explain to all concerned what the child or the children's experience is and based on my knowledge and experience as a mental health practitioner, what sorts of things might be helpful, might be less helpful. I'd like the opportunity to not have to look in the crystal ball and, and to predict what's going to happen over the next year, three years, five years, the rest of their lives, and, and what I have to say then becomes this oracle of truth and fact. Um, I'd like to be able to be more actively involved in an ongoing way um, and I'd like to work with my... with the family, yeah. more
0: involved, yeah. And with
1: the lawyers, um, to yes. hold on. I, I know there are complicated... What does legal that mean thing. in
0: reality when you say work with lawyers and lawyers? Um, in actual
1: nitty-gritty sense, what does that mean? Nitty-gritty sense, uh, get a family referred, ask the lawyers to come with their clients and for me to tell them what I think is going on, how I understand what I think they should do and get lawyers working with me to implement that and encourage the clients to look at it from their child's perspective and for us to say, in three or six months' time, let's have another look at it and see how we're going to see whether, in fact, your child is f- faring better or worse, would be a great outcome. Also supporting my recommendation if I thought that one or other parent would do really well to get some assistance to themselves, Quite separate from all of this, private and confidential because they're struggling, whatever the case may be, a more holistic, integrated approach rather than using my reports as a weapon to hit the other person over the head with.
0: So almost like a more collaborative, you working with the lawyers and lawyers working with you. I
1: would describe parents. it as more cooperative.
0: Cooperative approach. Okay. okay. Yeah, more yeah. cooperative yeah.
1: Because I think that there's a... You know, the vast majority of the lawyers I've worked with in Melbourne um, uh, are psychologically minded or genuinely wanting the best outcome, sure. not wanting lots of litigation. Who sure. needs all the fighting and the aggravation? Um, mm.
0: Mm.
1: So trying to think a little more creatively to see if there's a way in which we can find solutions in an otherwise complicated, wrought, difficult situation.
0: So you actually raised the the parties, so the mums and dads or whatever, meeting with you and also the lawyers coming too? Possibly, possibly? yeah. Yeah, I I have to say, I haven't seen that done normally, but it's an interesting idea, like speaking about creative ideas, you know. Um,
1: Um, And I understand there will be resistance to that. Um, That will be, I think, a very revealing uh, process because immediately what will become apparent is the extent to which the, the parties involved, including the lawyers and the parents, are inclined towards solution-focused or problem saturation. So if we immediately... And, and it's remarkably revealing, you know, so and, and um, I insist on everything being reportable so that I can inform the court in the event that I need to. Probably about half my work, though, entails people who are referred to me in order to discuss their children and to discuss the implementation of parenting plans without their lawyer's intervention, okay. although it comes with their lawyer's advice and recommendation to do so. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And in terms of what I guess your sort of thoughts are for parents, I think we've, we've gone through that a bit, but you basically mentioned um, not using the, the children as a go-between, trying to protect the children from conflict. Yep. Anything else you would add for parents that are listening in who are separating, whether or not they're in the family law process or not, but just parents that are separating?
1: Oh, look, lots of things. Um,
0: This is your moment. Get get in your your soapbox. Come on, Vincent.
1: Well, remember, children only have one childhood. Mm -hmm. What you deposit into them is going to have a a long-term impact on them. Remember that they are half their mum and half their dad and... Having their parents actively and constructively involved in their life is much more likely to contribute positively to them than negatively. The children don't want to hear their parents speak badly about each other. They want to be connected to their parents. They want to be connected to their extended family. They want to have a sense of belonging. They don't need to hear uh, all the terrible things that the other parent has done, even if it's true. So what? and that they will benefit from more cooperation and inclusion, rather than less cooperation and exclusion.
0: Well, thank you for that. That was a really fantastic list. There's something that I'm a little bit—it's just a little bit of a pet interest of mine. I, I hope I can take you into this segue, if that's okay, because I'm just curious to pick your brains about it. Actually, um, I've had a number of matters, um, you know, where. Got to, look, I don't want to generalise about this, but you might have, for example, a, a Chinese family or a family of a different non-Anglo origin, yep. and you know, the, both the mama and the dad say so, went back to work very quickly, and the child was then very much raised by grandparent A, and then might have been just with grandparent A, and then maybe then the grandparents on the other side of the family took the child for a while, and there yes. seems to be like a different structure than what you know we normally see in an Anglo-Australian yes. kind of centric family, um, and. Like, how those matters are dealt with currently in the court, sometimes I think, and I mean this really respectfully, no disrespect to the court, I what I personally anecdotally see is it's not always, I don't think, completely understood yet, or it's sort of like they're trying to put a square peg into a round hole. You know what I mean? It's not... Yes. It's sort of like, oh, well, we, well, we've got to make mum kind of the quasi-primary carer, even though it's really been the grandparents, so we'll, we'll put, you know, this time arrangement and then factor in a bit more time with the grandparents just for the argument, you know, but it's not really... You know, what do you think about those different it's sort of cultural really families?
1: Um, I think, in, in my experience, I've had quite a number of families. It seems to me as though it's predominantly an, an Asian phenomenon it is, yeah, yeah. Uh, that it's quite common for children to, again, in my limited experience, yeah. uh, it's not uncommon for some of the children I've seen to be sent to live with grandparents for a I've year seen or that so, too,
0: overseas, yeah.
1: uh, sent overseas. And th- these children all seem to do fine mm. because there seems to me a general family ethos that this is just what happens that in our family, this is how it works, that you get to low and live with your grandparents, that they're going to take care of you, and in a period of time, you're going to come back, and our expectation is that you'll come back into our care and you'll be fine, and they do seem to be fine.
0: Well, what about attachment theory and how all that works? It's theory?
1: really interesting, isn't it? Because... Oh, I um, really want
0: to pick your brains. I'm just actually um, curious. It's not even think, a podcast. <laughs> yeah.
1: Look, I think that um, you know, I, I'm not a sufficient expert to be able to reflect upon all those <laughs> complex uh, attachment uh, issues. But it does seem to me as though it falls into the category of children developing multiple attachments to secure people and it's that, that idea of a bridge, that these people all have safe, secure bridges and the expectation is that this person is going to look after you, that you're not going to be with your mum and dad for a period of time, you're going to look, be looked after and cared for optimally and loved and cared and nurtured. And this is and, a great thing.
0: This that's is a great thing. And, and then
1: you're going to come back yeah. and we're going to do it as well. So that it, it's a, a really different way of doing it. Um, and so I guess it falls into that category if your parents decide you're going to move to Siberia and live in cardboard boxes, well <laughs> then that's what you do. And if your parents decide you're going to go and live for a year in China or, in China or Singapore with your grandparents, well that's what's going to happen. I mean, there presumably are a multitude of families out in the community who are functioning very adequately making these sorts of decisions all the time.
0: And we don't see them because they're not separating so they because don't Because they're not the separating and
1: suddenly these things aren't amplified as being of particular importance or significance. Some years ago I saw a family, um, they were both young lawyers and they had very busy uh, careers and what they did was from the time they separated when the child was three months, they engaged a nanny and they alternated this child every other night. Mm-hmm. Okay. And at 24 months, they came to see me because someone had told them that what they were doing was catastrophically bad and they worried their child was really damaged as a consequence Mm. of the choice. Now, this was the most happily well-adjusted child you could ever see who very comfortably moved backwards and forwards and a couple of really significant features. The first is that the parents were polite, respectful, engaged and cooperative. They didn't expose the child to any conflict. In fact, they needed the other parent to help them out because of their flourishing careers. And they had the one childcare provider, the nanny, who moved between the two houses. So in many ways, this child's life was very settled and very stable. Mm. Mm -hmm. Probably in the real world, my my most salient example of this was a a family I saw some time ago who separated um, when their little boy was two. He had cerebral palsy, he was blind, he wasn't toilet trained, had no language. Uh, The mother worked in a cannery, the father was a baker, and they exchanged this boy on our ring road at 4 o'clock in the morning every morning. They had no choice. The father picked him up before mother went to work and he would take him home, put him to bed, he'd go have a few hours sleep, he'd then take him to Urella, then come back and sleep, then the mother, they just had no choice. This, mm-hmm. And as far as I could tell, this boy was as well-adjusted as possible because his parents were working cohesively and cooperatively. Mm-hmm. They presented a united front and his understanding was, well, my well, Mum and Dad are making it happen like this. And this is what happens in our family. Full stop.
0: So there's a real value on com- confidence, parents being confident, this is what we're doing, this is... This united, is united,
1: confidence, uh, uh, in synchrony, all of those things. Now I only got to see that family because Mum repartnered and wanted to move away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, this child's relationship with his parents was unequivocally positive and when it came to the business of parenting, they were on the same page. They yes put aside all the other nonsense because they had no choice. Mm. And they could still feel poorly about each other and they could feel terribly betrayed and they could feel abandoned, but still they had this little boy who no one else could look after except them. And that forced them to interact, interact in a way that meant there was a k- cohesive, consistent, predictable experience for this child. And if you think of the holy trilogy of child development that I started with, stable, consistent, predictable, that is the fundamental trilogy that underpins I think the experience you've described, Asian families sending kids backwards and forwards and some of my case experience. Mm. That if you have parents who are in control, parents who are parenting authoritatively, parents who are being polite and respectful, parents who are being cooperative, and parents who are really reflecting upon the needs of their child and working to advance that, you'll have kids who will be okay. Mm. Mm. That's just
0: interesting because I feel like Sometimes the reaction to that sort of arrangement, you know, is sometimes, oh, but this is terrible for attachment, and why has the child gone off to China for a year or two, and now they come back here and da do da. and I just wondered what your thoughts were, you know, from your perspective. I think question.
1: that we need to be uh, culturally sensitive and attuned.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, I, I think I can call myself an expert, Zoe, because I've made every mistake at least once. <laughs> um, it's
0: okay if you make it once. It's only you know, uh, if you make making it making... ten times in a row. And
1: I remember very early on that um, I, I blindly walked into a, a, an a, an indigenous family where I used the term uncle and aunt in a completely different way to the way they were using uncle and aunt. And this child was being cared for by a family, a community, and really was being looked after extremely well. Mm. And to by walk in different people, yeah. by different people and was shared. But, but their understanding was that this was a, a coherent...
0: Well, what about that saying it takes a village to raise a child? Yeah, I, I think mean, that's... how does that work with the whole... Because sometimes I feel like the way... I'm not a psychologist, right? But the way we're sort of understanding attachment theory or the way... Is it being sometimes applied in a bit of a cookie-cutter fashion in family law? I mean, I want to be careful here, but, you know, yeah. it's just kind of, it's got to be like this. We've got to mush this family into this shape. This, we've got to mush this Chinese family that's been doing this other thing now into trying to make it just mum and dad and not the... Grand, you know, like, it, it gets... Look, I, don't I see know, that.
1: I don't know if that's the case. Mm. Um, generally, I think that what the mental health researchers in this country have contributed to the understanding of attachment theory and its relevance to the family law context has been of immeasurable importance. Of
0: course, I'm not trying to say that uh, attachment theory isn't, yeah. isn't real. I'm just
1: saying... Is it, is it relevant to... I don't know the answer to that.
0: Mm.
1: I would hope that most people who are doing this work would try and reflect and respect every family's unique story. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and I was a person who was raised by their grandmother because their because his parents had a shop and they had to work. Mm. I hated school. You're (laughs) fine.
0: And
1: and I hated school holidays because it meant that I'd have to go and sit in the shop the whole time because there was no-one to look after me. Mm. Uh, But that's the way it was. That's the way it was, And my parents told me that's the way it was, unfair as it might be. Mm. Mm -hmm. No, it's
0: just just really interesting to me. Like, I just think, you know, as uh, we've got different, you know, increasingly sort of global world and immigration and different people living in... Australia, and just looking at the way different families are structured, I think is really really interesting. I would
1: imagine, and um, just really speaking from a perspective of my own clinical speculation, that even in those families there are probably still clear rules and hierarchies, Mm. clear boundaries. There are probably, those families who do well probably have uh, cohesive relationships, they are stable, consistent, they're predictable, everybody knows what the rules are and how everyone relates to each other.
0: But what I find interesting is, I guess, sometimes feel like in family law, it can slip into, you know, and maybe I've slipped into this myself, you know, sometimes that concept that it just has to be the two, it's just the mum and the dad, or the, you know, or the mum and the mum, or the dad and the dad, and that, how does that work with the whole, it takes a village to raise a child, and what you were saying before about sometimes the child would have multiple attachments, the solid well, we attachments, ho- we hope so you know, not just to the mum and the dad, you know.
1: I, I hope that what happens is that the child develops a relationship with its extended family using the mum or the dad yeah. as the base from which they explore. Where it becomes, for me, problematic and concerning is when one whole side of that person's experience is rejected completely. So they lose uncles and aunts and cousins and extended family and grandparents, etc. I think that that is, common sense dictates that's significantly less helpful than more helpful.
0: Mm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And have you had a chance at all to look over any of the um, reform, or the proposed reforms the ALRC? I've only heard
1: a few. Um, what have you heard? Uh, in particular, <laughs> heard? The, uh, in particular, I was interested in the possibility of arbitrating children's matters.
0: Do you have any thoughts about that? I think it's
1: an excellent idea. So do I,
0: actually, personally. I
1: think it's an excellent idea. Especially those cases that aren't contentious. Uh, you know, the the big-ticket t- big cases where there are uh, relocation cases or allegations of abuse, those sorts of cases that need the big testing of forensic evidence. But if we're talking about whether they're going to go to school, which school they're going to go to, whether they're going to go for one night or two nights or seven days or nine days, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think those sorts of less impactful decisions can be made from a sensible developmental perspective in which I'd imagine enormous cost and distress can be avoided. I I think it's an excellent idea and I hope that it comes up and I I hope it happens
0: any other forms that have caught your eye that you I know it's only just come out and...
1: and I, I haven't read it, I only saw a little bit that right. was on, on, uh, on LinkedIn. That's the one that jumped out at me and I thought that's an... I think intuitively an excellent idea and a good way to move.
0: Hmm. All right, well look, I think that's about it in terms of... We had a longer discussion than I thought we would, so thank you for sticking with me um, through it, Vincent. Um, you've been listening to Vincent Papaleo. And this is, I'm Zoe Duran, and this is my podcast, Inside Family Law. Thanks for listening.